Now, in 1859, a lot of times books had long titles, unlike today. Uh, and that whenever you read about this book in secular publications, they very seldom give the full title of Darwin's book. Okay, the full title is not just The Origin of Species, but The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. In today's world, that doesn't sound very politically correct, does it? This idea of favored races. Okay, it, kind of, it was in, in 1859. But, you know, if evolution theory is true, maybe some races are more favored than others, right? Maybe some have evolved a little farther than the rest. Now, Stephen Jay Gould was a professor at Harvard University for a long time. He died, I don't know, 20 years ago or so. And he hated creationists, he hated Christians, he hated the Bible, but he was one of the more honest evolutionists. Every once in a while, you would catch him in an honest moment. He said this, he said, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Objective modern science shows us that races can be ranked on a scale of superiority. If this offends Christian morality or a sentimental belight in human unity, so be it. Science must be free to proclaim unpleasant truths. Okay? So, now, by all accounts, Darwin himself was a, a, a very timid guy. He was, he was reclusive and quiet. He came up with his theories, but he didn't really do a whole lot himself to push them. Thomas Huxley was another story, though. He was a belligerent loudmouth, and he hated Christians in the Bible as well. But he kind of went on a road show going around promoting Darwin's ideas for him. He was known as Darwin's bulldog, okay? And he said this, No rational man cognizant of the facts believes that the average Negro is the equal, still less the superior of the white man. Now, with all the, the ruckus that's made today over racism and all this sorts of thing, they always want to pick on people like, you know, George Washington or Robert E. Lee. How come they never bring up the, the quotes, which there are many. I just got this one. I could, could have chosen from many, many quotes from these evolution guys who, t who have been preaching this stuff for a very long time. How come they never bring this up? Okay. Like, for example, you could bring up, this is a true story. You can read about it if you want to. Oda Banga was an African pygmy. The, uh, they kidnapped him from his wife and child, what the Bible calls man-stealing. And they brought him over to America and put him on display in the zoo alongside monkeys to show how similar uh, the pygmies were to the, to the monkeys. That they were, you know, there's, there's really not much difference between a, a monkey and, a, and a, you know, some of these other races of people, right? He eventually got his hands on a revolver and took his own life, by the way. Anyway, some of the leaders at this time started teaching that groups of people like the Aborigines were closer to the apes because they had bigger jawbones. Okay, now any any uh, this is this guy wrote a book about the as you can see the same phenomenon in some of the Eskimos where they have bigger jawbones because any bodybuilder will tell you the bigger your muscles get, the bigger your bones get. And these Aborigines, these Eskimos, they use their jaws all the time, almost like a vice. They strip wood off a of bark with it. They're just constantly very, very heavy use of their jaws. Okay? So this is just one example of how evolution theory has nothing to do with it. It has to do with uh, using their, their, their muscles and their bones, and they grow more okay, than, than yours or mine might. All right. Anyway, this I know you can't read this again. I, I keep apologizing for that, but... This is an article about uh, some New South Wales missionaries were horrified to witness the, uh, uh, the slaughter of mounted police of groups of dozens of Aboriginal men, women, and children. Forty-five heads were then boiled down, and the ten best skulls were packed off and shipped over to Europe to be used as evidence for evolution, right? And unless you think this is only a white man's problem, here's, here's Louis Farrakhan saying white people are potential humans. They haven't evolved yet, Okay. It's not just one. Look, the Bible says God made of one blood all nations of men, 
okay, for dwell on the face of the earth. It's okay for there to be other races. We all came, from, if you go back far enough, we all came from Adam and Eve, or actually we all came from Noah and his family, okay? So at this, this point in history led to something called eugenics. If you know what eugenics is, raise your hand. Have you ever heard of it before? See, so look, there's not, not really a whole lot of hands up, okay? This was big in the United States and Western Europe in the, uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, okay? What eugenics is, is, it says in the small print there, eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution. Look, if evolution's true, then in one race has evolved a little farther, that maybe we can just kind of, maybe we can kind of help evolution along. We can get, look, we've, we do that with cattle, Right? This was their reasoning. They said, we, we, try to, we try to breed cattle to get you know, bigger and fatter cows. We do the same things with hogs. Why don't we do the same thing with people? And, and what do you do to cattle and hogs that don't quite make the cut? You call them, right? That's a nice way to say you eliminate. You kill them off, right? So this, this is what eugenics was. Okay? This is the idea that we should direct human evolution through sterilization, abortion, outright murder, okay? This guy, Julian Huxley, he was the president of the British Eugenics Society. He died in 1975, but he was the grandson of Thomas Huxley. Okay? He was also the brother, by the way, of uh, Aldous Huxley, who wrote the, the book Brave New World. Okay? He said, this is from his Wikipedia page, it says that uh, Huxley was one of the many intellectuals at the time who believed that the lowest class in society was genetically inferior. He ad- advocated the virtual elimination of the few lowest and most degenerate types. In his writing, he used this argument several times. No one doubts the wisdom of managing the germ plasm of agricultural stocks, so why not apply the same concept to human stocks? If we breed, that's what I just said. If we breed horses and, and dogs and pigs to get better animal, why don't we do the same thing with people, right? How many of you have heard the term transhumanism in the news lately? You heard them, them talking about that? Believe it or not, this term was actually coined by Julian Huxley in 1957. I didn't, I didn't realize that until I was, I was doing some research on this, okay? Transhumanism is the belief that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology, right? So after World War II, we're going to see in a minute, the, the eugenics thing kind of fell out of favor because it reached its natural conclusion in the Holocaust. So you, uh, transhumanism, then, is kind of the new eugenics. So be watching for that. Now, instead of using more brutal methods to direct human evolution, they're going to try to use science and technology. Elon Musk has been talking about sticking electrodes in your brain, all kinds of crazy stuff, right? It's transhumanism. It's the new eugenics, right? And here's a picture of Julian Huxley, uh, Edwin Hubble, and good old Walt Disney there chumming around, right? Oh, not good old Walt. He wouldn't have anything to do with this stuff, right? Yeah, the children's cartoons, especially the Walt Disney Corporation, has been a trailblazer for the corruption of youth. For, you know, the people, I hear, you know, well, back in the old days, the Disney films weren't bad. They've just been corrupted in, you know, in recent times. It's not actually true. They've been teaching evolution. You you can see it in their, one of their oldest films, Fantasia, you can, you know, and not to mention the homosexuality. You know, here's an article about Disney showing a gay kiss in a children's cartoon for the first time. Okay? And it's no wonder, because Julian Huxley said this. He said, I suppose the reason why we leapt at the origin of species was because our science proved it. Is that what he said? No, he said the reason we leapt at origin of species is because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. Remember what it said in Second Peter? That the scoffers in the last days were going to come walking after their lust. It's not their science, right? It's their lust, okay? And Julian Huxley admitted that. So then he had Margaret Sanger around this time, too. She started Planned Parenthood in 1916. 
it was actually called something else back then. I can't, the American uh, something league, I forget. Anyway, uh, she thought that Jews, Orientals, blacks, groups like that were inferior species. She called them human weeds and wanted to eliminate them through abortion. She died an alcoholic and a drug addict, by the way. Okay? This is a chart uh, showing that, that, believe it or not, there were sterilization laws in the United States prior to World War II. This is a chart of the different states having uh, the, the different laws. You can read about that sometime if you want to. Okay? But this was all in order to, uh, to move along the eugenics movement. Okay? And, you, of course, then you, you had you know, around the 1930s and 40s, Hitler came to power in Germany, which had been influenced for a long time by uh, writings of different evolutionists. And it says the German Fuhrer has consistently sought to make Germany conform to the, practi- uh, to the theory of evolution. Of course, evolution is the foundation we saw last week from communism. It's also the foundation of Nazism. Okay? This is interesting. This guy here, Adolf Eichmann, he was one of Hitler's top henchmen. And he is probably more responsible for the Holocaust even than Hitler himself. Okay? Now, this book this is a book called Bones of Contention. It was written by a guy named Marvin Lubinow. He was a, a, a paleoanthropologist with like 50-plus years of experience. He's a Christian. I have this book at home. If anybody wants to read it, it's awesome. It's, if you are interested in how he, uh, human fossils do not prove evolution in any shape, way, matter, or form, this is the book to read, okay? He has a really interesting section in his book about Adolf Eichmann. Now, Eichmann, if you've never heard the story of what happened to him, it's, it, it reads like a, some kind of a James Bond novel or something. It's crazy. He, it's a true story. After the war... There was something called the rat line, okay? That's where the, a lot of the German uh, uh, war criminals and, and officers, they, got, they were helped by the Catholic Church as well as some other people, and they got on ships and sailed down to South America where they intended to live out the rest of their lives in peace and escape prosecution for war crimes, okay? And Adolf Eichmann was one of those who did that. He escaped to Argentina. And I think for about 15 years or so, he worked at a factory making cars for Volkswagen, I think it was. But anyway, some Israeli hunt, uh, commandos, they, they were called the Nazi hunters. After the war, they went around the world looking for Nazis to prosecute. Okay? They found out about Eichmann living in Argentina. So they went down there. They located him. They kidnapped him, drugged him, put him on a plane, and flew him back to Israel where he stood trial for war crimes and was hanged in 1961. Okay? And this is very interesting. Before he was hanged, this is what he had to say. This comes out of the book here. I know you can't read this, so I'll read it for you. It says, The British sent over a believing man of God, a chaplain, to talk to this poor fellow. Just before he was hanged, Eichmann had a last consultation with the chaplain. The chaplain said, Herr Eichmann, before you see God tomorrow, wouldn't you like to get absolution? Wouldn't you like to confess? Eichmann reared up and said, Confess? What have I got to confess? I've done nothing wrong. The chaplain replied, You've done nothing wrong. Do I understand you? Yes, Eichmann replied. I've done only right. The chaplain said, would you please explain yourself? Certainly I will, said Eichmann. Both the churches in Germany, the Catholic and the Protestant, believe in theistic evolution. Both of them believe that God's method of creation was to wipe out the handicapped and to wipe out the less fitted. And the Jews are less fitted than our people. I have only helped God in his methods. I have only catalyzed God's way of working. And when I meet God, I shall tell him so. What do you, what do you think of that? Right? This is, the, this is the kind of garbage that evolution theory leads to. Okay? This is just following the theory to its natural conclusion. Okay? The idea that inferior races need to be wiped out. They should be eliminated. Okay? And, and you'll never understand what happened in the Holocaust in World War II until you understand the connection to evolution theory. Textbooks today 
teach the kids that, you know, the Holocaust, it was all about economics and the Germans were mad because they lost World War I and the Jews had all the money. And those things were factors, but they very seldom mention the true reason was because they were an inferior species that needed to be eliminated. Okay? That is why the Holocaust happened. Anyway, it wasn't just the Germans, the Japanese at this time. They actually did, they wanted to know, too, hey, which species of people has evolved the farthest? They did real scientific studies, and lo and behold, it was the Japanese, right? They found out that the Jap- they had less body odor, less hair, things like that, and they, they, did, they concluded, they, hey, we must be the farthest evolved species. You wonder why you hear all these stories about how they, the, the Japanese were just incredibly cruel to prisoners of war, the Bataan Death March and so on, right? It's because, they, well, they were, these aren't human. They're just a bunch of animals, right, that were leading to their deaths, okay? In China, the communists, when they took over in 1949, they began executing Christians at the rate of 15,000 a month. And Mao Zedong eventually murdered 60 to 70 million of his own people, Okay. He listed, Mao, uh, uh, he listed Darwin and Huxley as his two favorite authors. I saw a, a testimony one time of a Chinaman that was there during that time. And he said, you know, when the com- you'd think, knowing the way communists are, that they would just come in and start brainwashing people in communism. But he said they didn't do that. So when they came to our village, they didn't start teaching communism. They started by teaching evolution. Because you need to, you need to see your fellow man as nothing more than an animal before you can start treating him like one. Okay. Now, then, after the war, in 1957, the Russians put up the satellite Sputnik. Is anybody here that was old enough to remember when that happened? <laughs> Some of you maybe, but okay. Uh, anyway, they, they, were, they were beating us in the space race, right? Every, the United States and Russia wanted to be the first to, to get into space, and the Russians beat us with Sputnik, and Americans panicked. They said, oh, no, the Russians are beating us in the space race. What are we going to do? Well, how were they able to do it? How were they able to, to beat us in science? What are they doing different than us? Well, they're teaching evolution more than we have. This was their thinking, okay? There's a book about this, this story. You can read about it if you want to. In 1959, President Eisenhower asked Congress for a billion dollars to start pushing more evolution in the schools, okay? Because they thought that, well, since the Russians are teaching evolution a whole lot more than we were, maybe it'll help us to compete with them if we start teaching science the way they do, Okay? So here's a little chart. You can see that prior to 1959, there was only about two to 3,000 words about evolution in textbooks at that time. After this program went through, it skyrocketed up to almost 27,000 words about evolution in the early 60s. Okay? Now, it's interesting. Around the same time, you know, 1963, I think, was the, the year they took uh, the Bible and prayer out of schools with Madeline Murray O'Hare and that whole bunch. Okay? It's interesting, at the same exact time, you start noticing a whole lot of other things going on, too. As the teaching about evolution starts going up, so does violent crimes, up 995% since 1963. Okay? Out-of-wedlock births have skyrocketed since 1963, not to mention all those that are being aborted. Okay? Uh, percentage of, t- of teen girls' uh, premarital sexual relations has gone through the roof since the early 60s. Divorce rates have skyrocketed since the early 60s. And all these, uh, these charts, this is the uh, U.S. National Center for Health Statistics, so it's not the National Enquirer here. This is, just, you know, this is United States government statistics, okay? Child abuse up 2,300%. Okay? Since, and, and every one of these charts, you, you look at it prior to the 60s and after early 60s, goes through the roof, okay? SAT scores have fallen like crazy. They've actually had to dumb down the SATs several times in order to make the scores look higher, okay? Teen suicide rates 
gone through the roof since 1963. Now, this stuff about you know, education, this guy here, uh, John Dewey, he, uh, he was a, he's known as the father of modern education. Uh, he was a humanist to the core. He, he hated Christians and the Bible and, and all that. Okay? He said that God was a faded piece of metaphysical goods. In the early 30s, there was a document called the Humanist Manifesto. Most of us have heard of the Communist Manifesto, right, which you know, it lists their goals in, in ten planks and so forth. Well, the Humanist Manifesto was a similar document that it listed the planks of humanism. The, remember, we talked about that last week. Humanism is basically the idea that, well, if there is no God, then humans must be God. So we're going to make our own rules, right? Just th- I have just three of the planks up here of the Humanist Manifesto that he signed in the early 30s. It says, first, humanist, uh, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Remember what Peter said that they were going to deny? The creation. Okay, that's what he's doing right there. He's denying the creation. Okay? The second plank, humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. Translation, evolution. Okay? That's the other thing that humanists, humanists believe. And third, holding an organic view of life, humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. In other words, you don't have a soul or a spirit. You're just a sack of chemicals, and there, you know, there's really nothing important about you anyway. Okay? Charles Potter was a friend of, of John Dewey, and he was another signer of the Humanist Manifesto. He said this. This was back in 1930. Okay? Education is thus the most powerful ally of humanism, and every American school is a school of humanism. What can a theistic Sunday school's meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching? That's his words, not mine, okay? Parents, be aware these folks are after your kids, and they have been for a long time, okay? Martin Luther said, I'm afraid the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor and explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them on the heart of the youth. I couldn't agree more. Anyway, around this time, the early 60s, among the, the scientific elite, there was virtually no one left on planet Earth who believed the Bible as written. Okay, they had almost all compromised with evolution, millions of years, humanistic teaching. But then in 1961, something happened. These two guys, scientists, John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, wrote this book right here called The Genesis Flood. Okay? And it was, it's basically the book that started the, the modern creation movement. Some, some scientists then started reading this book and thinking, wow, maybe there's something to this. See, these guys were, remember we talked about catastrophism and, and uniformitarianism? These guys were modern catastrophists, and they started to say, wait a minute, there, there's, a, there's another side to the story here. The, the land features and the things that we see on the earth actually can be, are much better interpreted as signs of a global flood, not millions of years of erosion and evolution. Okay, And their book really, it took some time, but eventually it did catch on. And because of the teachings of this book, many of the scientists in the latter half of the 20th century started to reject Darwin okay, in, in favor of creation. Not necessarily Bible-believing fundamentalist Baptist Christians like us, but many of them started to at least reject Darwin. And this led to the academic persecution of Christians who didn't go along with the evolution theory. Okay? For example, here's a guy in Washington. He's a science teacher. He saw some errors in the science textbook, you know, evolutionary errors, and all he did was bring in current science journals and said, here, kids, what the textbook says is outdated, it's not correct, here's a current science journal uh, showing, the, you know, what, what the current research is. Didn't mention God, didn't mention creation, what, they said, no, you can't do that. So what, you have to teach the errors in the books, you can't show them something current? Okay, Forrest Mims was a science writer for 20 years. He wrote for National Geographic, uh, was Science Digest, American Journal of Physics. 
He applied for a job at Scientific American and they denied him because he believed in creation. He wasn't even going to write on anything to do with creation or evolution, but if you believe in creation, nope, we don't want you. You have to believe in evolution. It's a carefully protected state religion. Okay? Dean Kenyon, another guy, he wrote for years, he wrote textbooks about evolution. Okay? He was an evolutionist. Then he started reading some of these materials, the Genesis flood and so forth. He said, you know what, I, th- I think they're right. I-, I don't really believe this evolution stuff anymore. So he published this textbook right here in 1993, and he was removed, for- he was fired. Okay? So it was, he was perfectly fine while he taught evolution all his life, but then the, the instant he, he said, yeah, you know what, I think the evidence shows something else, nope, shut him off like a spigot. Okay? And it goes on and on. I could, I could have showed you hundreds of examples of this. I like what this Chinese paleontologist said, though. He said, in China, we can criticize Darwin, but not the government. In America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. That's exactly the way it is, especially in academic circles. Okay? This is a good film, if you've never seen this, about, about this subject right here. Uh, ben Stein's called Expelled. It's about the, the persecution of teachers, any teacher, who would dare to question the evolution uh, myth. Okay? So then in the 1980s, it's like the floodgates were open. There was just an avalanche of books and materials and organizations that were formed that were challenging the evolution theory. There's some funny stories about the evolutionists just being embarrassed one time after another throughout the 80s. And through the 90s and the early 2000s and even up through today, this movement has continued to pick up steam. It really hasn't uh, lost steam at all. The, everything about the evolution theory has been completely and thoroughly debunked. Okay? But as we saw last time, we'll see a few quotes here in, in a minute. They refuse to give up they, they, because, remember, they're not in it because of their science. If they were, they would have changed their minds by now. They're in it because of their lust, okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us, parents, it says, and thou, that's you and me, talking about God's laws, his precepts, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. That's our job as Christian parents, okay? So when your, when your child goes to school five days a week and the teacher says, and I realize it's not everyone, okay, but the, you know, the, this is the overall message they're hearing. Evolution's true, the Bible's wrong. Evolution's true, the Bible's wrong. They turn on the TV Saturday morning. Evolution's true, the Bible's wrong. Then Sunday they go to church and the, you know, the pastor wants to preach about Jonah and the whale or something. They think it's irrelevant, okay? That's what's going on. This is a, just a, a short list of guys. I could have included many more. These guys, Alistair Crowley, maybe you recognize some of these names. Alistair Crowley, the, the twisted satanic uh, wizard that, you know, he called himself the Beast 666. He was one time known as the most wicked man in the world, had a great heavily influence on rock music. Uh, Alfred Kinsey, the sick pedophile pervert. Nathaniel Hawthorne, John Steinbeck, Ernest Hemingway, uh, pagan authors, wrote awfully wretched books. Sigmund Freud, the cocaine addict that came up with the psychoanalysis uh, movement where he wouldn't even allow himself to be psychoanalyzed. Jean-Paul Sartre, humanist philosopher. Mark Twain, a lot of people don't realize, was a God-hater. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he was a French uh, philosopher who abandoned like five or six of his own children on an orphanage doorstep and then proceeded to write books on child-rearing. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist today. You know what all of these people have in common besides their hatred for God and the Bible? You know what they have in common? They were raised in Christian homes. Every one of them. You know, somewhere somebody dropped the ball. Okay? We've got to be careful as Christian parents that we don't have a, a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Because that can be the result right there. Okay? Sir Arthur Keith, he was a, one of the most famous evolutionists of the last century. 
He said evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the only alternative is special creation, and that is unthinkable. Another honest evolutionist. Every once in a while, you'll find one. Okay? This guy, George Walt, he was a Nobel Prize winner in biochemical science. He said, I will not accept creation philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arising to evolution. You'll find ones that admit it once in a while. Okay? And you know what Jesus said? He said, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Anyone teaching evolution to a child is going to have to answer to Jesus one day. You know that? And he says, if you're going to cause a little one that believed in him to doubt his faith, it would be better for you to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Okay? We need to be careful of that. That actually concludes the first part of this, the, the history lesson. And since we have a few minutes left, I'm going to jump right into the second part, which is about millions of years itself. We, we touched on this, but we didn't actually go over any evidence. We just, you know, we made the, the comment that the earth's not millions of years old, but we didn't actually show it. So we'd like to start then with biblical evidence, and then we'll move on to some scientific stuff, okay? The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We all know that, right? Well, a question, then, when was the beginning? That's the question, okay? If God made the beginning, uh, if he made the earth in the beginning, when was it? Hebrews tells us, and now, Lord, in the beginning, has laid the foundation of the earth, okay? So when he laid the foundation of the earth, that was the beginning, okay? Jesus, in Matthew 19, it says, and he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so in the beginning is when he laid the foundation of the earth, that's when he made male and female. Okay, simple enough. Mark 10, 6 says it again. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. It's pretty clear. So it is written in Colossians, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. So this Adam that was made at the beginning was the first man. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, it's a pretty, pretty clear picture we're getting here, I think. Okay, now if you go to Luke chapter 3, it's one of those passages you love to read, right? Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarah, and on and on. Okay. If you count up the generations there that are listed, it gives 20 generations. Okay. And this list goes from, Abraham, uh, from Adam to Abraham. Okay. 20 generations from Adam to Abraham. Follow so far? Okay. And if you turn over to Matthew chapter 1, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. So we've got 20 from Adam to Abraham. 14 from Abraham to David, uh, and from the David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Okay? So, you count up the, you got 20 plus 14 plus 14 plus 14 means you've got 62 total generations from Adam to Jesus Christ. Now, I put approximately there because there's, there's several questions. You know, first of all, well, exactly how long is a generation? Is it 60 years, 80, 100? You know, we could go on about that. And also, it's, uh, you know, I'm aware that God apparently removed a few people out of those genealogies because of their wickedness. That's kind of another story. But without getting lost in those details, the point is, from Adam to, to Jesus Christ, we've got 60, 70 generations. We're talking in terms of thousands of years, not billions. Okay, does that, that make sense? Okay, whether it's 62 or 68 or whatever, the point is we're dealing with thousands of years, not billions. This perfectly adds up to around you know, 4,000 years or so from Adam to Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we know we have 2,000 years from Jesus Christ to today. So a total human history of around 6,000 years, roughly. Okay? 
So God says that he, in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. Okay? In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Six days, the Bible says. So the, it's not a question of what the Bible says. It's a question of do you believe that? Okay? It says here in Genesis chapter 1, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Notice that word T-H-E. In English, it's called the definite article. Okay? How many the first days were there? Okay, one, right? It says the evening and the morning, singular. Okay, it's, it's quite clear the Bible is talking about the first day. Now, there, I don't usually go into Hebrew and things like that because I don't speak Hebrew and I, don't, I think we have a perfectly good English Bible anyway. But sometimes people will say like, well, you know, if you go to the Hebrew, it may, maybe it allows for millions of years. So this quote is from a professor of Hebrew at Vanderbilt University. He said, probably so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew of Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer of Genesis 1 to 11 intended to convey to their readers the idea that creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Okay? So if somebody says, well, you know, maybe the Hebrew allows for millions of years. No, the Hebrew professors say it does not. It means just what we think it means by reading the English. Okay? Now, this is interesting. In Martin Luther's day, he had the opposite problem. Today, people are saying, well, it took millions of years for God to do it. In his day, this, the religious establishment was saying, no, 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 no. God didn't do it in six days because, see, he didn't need six days. See, God's so powerful, he did it in just one day. Right. And doesn't that sound so pious to say, you know, well, God, God is more powerful than that. His word declares or whatever they're trying to say. And I, and I like his his response to these folks. OK, he said, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. OK. <laughs> Like, it's pretty good, right? Look, he says he did it in six days. If he really did it in six days, how else would he say it, okay? Now, I thought I would, I would throw this verse in there because sometimes folks will go to this verse and say, well, yeah, but doesn't the Bible say that a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years, right? So, you know, maybe that allows some wiggle room that, you know, maybe the days represented millions of years. But if you read the verse, first of all, he says, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. He doesn't say it is a thousand years. He says it's as a, a thousand years, okay? And a thousand years as a day. I'd like to point out, first of all, it's talking about thousands, not millions. But anyway, that aside, okay? If you read the context of this verse, what he's actually talking about is with the verse that we read last week, which is just a few verses before this, where he says that in the last days, the scoffers are going to come, and uh, they're going to say, well, where is the promise of his coming? You know, this, what, what's the matter? Is his watch not working? Like, he's, this Jesus isn't coming. And Peter's telling, telling us today, look, don't worry about that. God's not late. Okay, his, there's, his time scale is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Okay, he's coming back in his own time. Don't worry about it. With God, time doesn't mean anything to God. Okay, he created it. In order for God to create time, he has to be outside of it. Amen. Greater than, Right. And if you read Genesis chapter, the, the scientists today tell us that you have to have what they call a continuum. Time, space, and matter all have to exist simultaneously. So that's what you have exactly in Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, there's your time. God created the heaven, that's space, and the earth. There's your matter. And some people have pointed out, it's interesting, you kind of have a trinity of trinities right there. You have time, which is past, present, and future. Uh, space, which is breadth, length, and height. And uh, matter, which is solid, liquid, gas. Trinity of trinities right there in Genesis chapter 1, Okay. 
It says in Psalm uh, 90, verse 4, again, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Time doesn't mean anything to the Lord. Haven't you ever been doing something you really enjoyed and it's like, it's like, oh man, the last hour just went by like that. It seemed like five minutes. And then other times you're doing something that's just drudgery and it's like, oh my goodness, it's been 5.30 for two hours, right? Time doesn't mean anything to the Lord. He's not subject to it like we are, okay, because he's created and put us in it. And besides, I, th- I think it would be an inconsistent application anyway, because there's uh, verses that say that Jesus Christ is coming back to reign for a thousand years. But I don't really hear anybody say, well, maybe he's only coming back for a day because after all, a thousand years is a day, right? So I think it would be an inconsistent application. Anyway, why do we have a year of 365 days? Well, the sun is up in the sky at a certain place and the sun actually makes its way through the constellations, right? So if you come back, the sun will be at exactly the same place in the heavens 365 days from now, right? Why do we have a month of 30 or 31 days? It's based on the lunar cycle, right? That's how long it takes the the moon to... uh, uh, rotate. Why do we have a day of 24 hours? Well, that's obvious, right? Same thing. The sun's in this place in the sky. 24 hours later, it's going to be right back in the same place, almost. Okay? But why do we have a week of seven days? Is there any astronomical sign or anything that the seven-day week is based on? No. The, the only thing the seven-day week is based on is Genesis chapter 1. Right? God made the earth in six days and rested one. Otherwise, what, maybe if he did it in millions of years, should we work for six million years and then rest a million? Right? That's why, and in fact, the French, in the French Revolution, they hated God. They hated the Bible. They actually tried to do away with the seven-day week and turn it into a ten-day week, and it failed miserably. It's a kind of funny story about that. Anyway, that's the way God wants. And the, the new Bibles is interesting, too. They, they're doing their part to try to, to show that the earth is millions of years old. This is funny. This is the Holy Bible in modern English by Farrar Fenton in 1903. What's Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? See if this Genesis 1-1 in his translation sounds like that to you. It says, by periods, God created that which produced the solar systems, then that which produced the earth. Does that sound like Genesis 1-1 to you? He's trying real hard to make it sound like there's, yeah, there's millions of years in there, okay? And he says, instead of the evening and the morning were the first day, he says, uh, this was the close and the dawn of the first age. Okay, just, again, just trying real hard to make millions of years into the Bible. Of course, the King James is the only one to get it right. When you read the NSB, NLT, AMP, RSV, ASV, they all changed the first day into one day, right? How many the first days are there? One, right? If you just say, well, there was evening and there was morning one day, well, that could be any day. Right? It doesn't have to be the first day, like the King James says. And Jesus says, look, if I told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe what I tell you of heavenly things? Okay? The Bible's pretty clear. And you wonder sometimes, like, okay, well, if, if all what you're saying is true, how could there be so many smart people, scientists, PhDs and stuff that don't get it? Well, the Bible says, you know, for this cause, God's going to send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, a rejection of the Word of God, okay? So now these few slides, we already saw some of this last week. Sometimes I don't do this entire presentation in other churches, so we've already seen some of these about what people used to believe about the age of the earth, uh, only a few thousand years old. Okay, the McGuffey Reader, you know, 6,000 years ago, there was no pleasant earth. Uh, This is from the Schofield Bible. Uh, A guy named Bishop Usher came up with the date of 4004 B.C. for the creation. I don't know if you can really get that accurate from Scripture or not, but the point is they believed 6,000 years ago was the creation. In 1770, George Buffon said the earth was 70,000 years old. Okay, this is when these ideas first started to come about. Then he had, uh, I don't have it up here, but uh, uh, 
with you guys uh, last week we talked about the, the book Theory of the Earth, okay, James Hutton. He, came, he increased it to millions. Okay, then in 1905, the official age of the Earth was 2 billion years old. 1969, the official age of the Earth was 3.5 billion years old. Today, students are taught that it's 4.6 billion years old. That means that the Earth's getting older about 21 million years per year for the last 220 years. That's 40 years a minute. So since we've been in this room tonight, the Earth's gotten several hundred years old, okay? So we're, all, we're, all, almost, we're running out of time tonight, but I'll just do this last point. If, you, if you're out scuba diving and you, found, you came upon a ship that had sunk, and you find a treasure chest in there. You bring it up to the surface. There's some gold coins in there. You think, man, I'm rich. Well, then you, want, you start wondering, I wonder when this boat sank, okay? So you start looking at the dates on the coins. And you find one that says 1695. Well, logically, then, that would tell you that, okay, the boat had to sink sometime after 1695, right? Well, let's say you dig in there a little bit further. You find another coin that says 1710. Now you can throw out the 1695 coin and say, okay, it has to be later than 1710 now because our data has changed, okay? You dig through a little further, 1750. See how the, the newer coins that you find, the, the older ones no longer really count anymore, right? That's, called, that's what they call the limiting factor, okay? You can't, the boat couldn't have sunk before the newest coin. So when you, uh, when, you, when you try to, if you wanted to know how old the earth was just by scientific test, how would you do it? Well, it turns out they've come up with dozens and dozens of ways to do it. And 90% of them give actually a young age for the earth. Only 10% even allow for an older age, even though that, 10, that same 10% can still, would, would still perfectly fit with a young age also. Okay? But they always want to neglect the 90% that give a young age for the earth in favor of the 10. Why? Well, the answer is obvious, because they want to prove evolution. Okay? The textbooks say that the Earth's billions of years old. We saw some of these slides last time. 18 to 20 billion years ago, all the matter in the universe was concentrated to a very dense, very, dot, uh, very hot region that may have been much smaller than a period on this page. Wow. Every rock, every, every piece of dust, every atom in the universe was squished in a little dot smaller than a period on a page. Right? Okay. This guy was brilliant, this author, this textbook author. He says, in the universe, nothing really means nothing. Not only matter and energy would disappear, but also space and time. However, physicists theorize that from this state of nothingness, the universe began in a gigantic explosion 16 and a half billion years ago. Okay? So how many of you ever heard that carbon dating proves the Earth is millions of years old? Right? I've heard that on the street. You know, does, well, how do you know the Earth is billions of years old? Oh, carbon dating, right? Well, I'm going to show you how carbon dating not only does not prove the Earth billions of years old, it actually shows that the Earth is young. And I'm going to show you that next time. We're running out of time for tonight. So you have to wait till, the, till next time until we learn about carbon dating. But thanks for your attentiveness tonight.